Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 33, Genesis chapters 36 and 37. Well, this week uh, we begin Genesis chapter 36. And while this chapter is primarily a genealogical listing, there's more to be gained from it that you might, than you might think. We can learn a lot about tribal society, how families mixed, and even the politics of the era from this chapter. So, as we start reading this, while it might seem like a nice time to kind of just mentally turn off, I'd uh, recommend that this may be actually one of those times to maybe go back and get a little more caffeine, all right, and pay close attention and take take a few extra notes this time. It'll help you considerably as we go down the line. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. If you have the uh, complete Jewish Bible, it is page 39. Genesis chapter 36. This is the genealogy of Esau, that is Edom. Esau chose Canaanite women as his wives. Adah, the daughter of Ilon the Hitti, Oholimavamah. Let me try that again. Oholimavamah. All right, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zivon the Hivite, Basmat, Yishmael's daughter, sister of Nabiot. Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basmat bore Reuel. Oholivamah bore Reush, Yalam, and Korosh. These were the sons of Esau born to him in the land of Canaan. Esau took his wives, his sons and his daughters, the others in his household, his cattle and his other animals, and everything else he owned, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went off to a country distant from his brother Yaakov, for their possessions had become too great for them to live together, and the countryside through which they were traveling couldn't support so much livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. This is the genealogy of Esau, the father of Edom, in the hill country of Seir. The names of Esau's sons were Eliphaz, son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basmat, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Tsepho, Gatam, and Gnaz. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore to Eliphaz Amalek. These were the descendants of Adah, Esau's wife. The sons of Reuel were Nahat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These were the sons of Basmat, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Oholivamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Tzivon, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Yehush, Yalam, and Korash. The chieftains of the sons of Esau were the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, and the chieftains of Timon, Omar, Sevo, and Kanaz, Korash, Gitam, and Amalek. These were the chieftains descended from Eliphaz in Edom and from Adah. 
The sons of Reuel, Esau's son, were the chieftains of Nachat, Zerach, Shammah, and Mitzah. These were the chieftains descended from Reuel in the land of Edom and from Basmat, Esau's wife. The sons of Oholibamah, Esau's wife, were the chieftains of Reush, Elam, and Korash. These were the chieftains descended of Hola, Ibamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These were the descendants of Esau, and these were their chieftains. These were the descendants of Seir the Hori, the local inhabitants. Lotan, Shoval, Sivon, Anah, Dishon, Etzer, and Dishan. These were the chieftains descended from the Hori, the people of Seir, and the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. The sons of Shoval were Alvan, Malchat, Eval, Shvo, and Onam. The sons of Zivon were Ayah and Anna. This is the Anna who found the hot springs in the desert while pasturing his father Zivon's donkeys. The children of Anna were Dishon and Ohola Libama. Oho. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh my. Oho Libamah, alright, the daughter of Anna. The sons of Dishon were Hemdan, Eshban, Yitran, Kran. The sons of Etzer were Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. The sons of Dishan were Uts and Iran. These were the chieftains descended from the Hori. The chieftains of Lotan, Shoval, Sivon, Anad, Dishon, Etzer, and Dishan, they were the chieftains descended from the Hori by their clans in Seir. Following are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king had reigned over the people of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Dinhabah. When Bela died, Yovav, the son of Zerah from Botsrah, reigned in his place. When Yovah died, Hushmam from the land of Temani reigned in his place. When Hushmam died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who killed Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city was Avit. When Hadad died, Samla of Masrachah reigned in his place. When Samla died, Shaul of Rehovot by the river reigned in his place. When Shaul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. When Baal Shanan died, Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city was Pau. And his wife's name was Mehetabalavel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Maizahav. These are the names of the chieftains descended from Esau according to their clans, places, and names. The chieftains of Timnah, Alva, Yetet, Oholibamah, Elah, Pinyon, Kenaz, Teman, Mitzvar, Magadiel, and Iram. These were the chieftains of Edom according to their settlements in the land they owned. This is Esau, the father of Edom. Well, this is rightly called the generations of Esau, you think? And at this point in the Old Testament, we can say that the personal history of the patriarchs ends. 
and the history of Israel, the 12 tribes, begins actually with the chapter after this one. Now let's remember that whenever we hear either Jewish or Christian scholars speak of the biblical patriarchs, or use, or, or the Bible uses the term patriarchs or fathers, okay, it is only speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now what we can readily see here is that Esau had many children and that it is clearly spelled out that Esau and Edom are first of all one and the same individual that Esau brother of Jacob is the founder of all the Edomite tribes that he is the namesake of the land of Edom and that Mount Seir is in the land of Edom and that the terms Seir and Edom are virtually inter interchangeable in the Bible. Okay, that is, when we hear the Bible speak of the land of Seir or Mount Seir or Edom, it's all basically the same place. And that place is at the southeastern end of the Dead Sea. Here we see this elongated Dead Sea here. Today it's kind of split and this is mostly dry, but but right down in this area here, you see Moab, up a little farther, Ammon. This was Edom down here. Now one of the purposes of these long of this long genealogical listing is to show us that the prophetic blessings of Isaac over his twin sons Esau and Jacob had or were in process of coming to pass. Let's review this blessing of Genesis 27 of Isaac over his sons that uh, goes in verses 38 through 40. You don't have to turn there. It's up here on the screen. It goes something like this. And Esau said to his father, Do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. So Esau lifted his voice and he wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of the heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, most of your Bibles will not say away from away from. It won't say away from. But instead, it'll leave out the word away. Several of your versions will, several won't. Making it that Esau will live in a fertile place where there is abundant moisture. It has long been known by Jewish and Hebrew scholars that it was rabbinic tradition that the word away was removed from the text. Okay, because it was a show of sympathy and understanding for Esau and his having been tricked out of his birthright and blessing. But in fact, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts plainly show that it was away 
from the fertility and moisture that Esau would live. And of course, that's exactly where Esau went. All right, to an area known as the Arabah, all right, the desert. Now, it should not go unnoticed that Esau continued in his profane ways that God in his foreknowledge knew that he would do. So he took away Esau's birthright and removed him from the line of promise even before he was born. Now, from here on in the Bible, Old Testament and New, Esau and Edom are generally associated symbolically with unrighteousness and with rebellion. And it gets more so as we leave the Torah and move into the later books of the Old Testament. Yet, some deference is paid to Esau. Because in Deuteronomy 23, Moses orders the Israelites, quote, not to abhor an Edomite. And an Edomite, of course, a descendant of Esau. Because, he says, they are kinsmen of Israel. So frankly, there's this almost schizophrenic remembrance of Esau in the Bible. At once aligning him with the unrighteous and the wicked and at the same time reminding Israel that the descendants of Esau are their kinsmen. And so Israel shouldn't hate Esau and his descendants. Now this kind of rationale kind of both sides of the coin at once, is quite difficult for the Western mind to understand. All right? Because we look at family relationships more from the European extended and nuclear family viewpoint. Okay? But, but we must remember that all the Bible talks about family relationships from the Middle Eastern tribal viewpoint from beginning to end. Okay, let me say that again. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, the context of family and nation in the Bible is tribal. So we have to be very careful not to just willy-nilly substitute our modern Western views and social structures into our understanding of Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. Now, in the news of the Middle East, which dominates our TV screens, it seems like 24 hours a day, you know, we endure these frustrating realities whereby the Sunni Muslims blow up the, Shila, uh, the Shiite Muslim mosques and vice versa, and then some Shiites kill some other Shiites and some Sunnis kill some other Sunnis, and then Iran Shiites hate the Iraqi Shiites. I mean, it just goes around in circles like this. And yet, when the U.S. comes to the aid of one, just to stop the horror, the other suddenly turns on the U.S. claiming brotherhood between the two warring factions. In Afghanistan, though the news from there barely makes a blip on the radar screen anymore, we constantly hear of one warlord, warlord, fighting against another. The U.S. siding with yet another, and then suddenly it all shifts around. All right, And the U.S. finds itself fighting against people who only yesterday were our allies. 
That's because these warlords are simply tribal leaders. They're what we just heard the Bible call chieftains. That's all they are. They're just doing what they've always done. Right? Attempting to gain dominance, which is job number one of any tribal leader. Um, I remember in the first war against Saddam Hussein, the war of the elder President Bush, I remember hearing the representatives of various Arab nations saying that they did not want to go to war against Saddam because even his invasion of Kuwait was simply bad behavior. Okay? Something that deserved admonishment but not destruction. They saw him as a brother who was misbehaving, causing trouble for the family, not as some ruthless dictator threatening the stability of the world. And even though these people will viciously attack and kill one another, it is in the end an age-old battle for tribal dominance in their minds. It's normal. It's not something to be stopped and changed. Okay? It's an ancient way of life that has existed since time immemorial and it is a preferred way for perhaps a majority of the people, but at the very least for the leadership of all these Middle Eastern peoples and nations. This is why these Middle Eastern nations that absolutely seem to hate one another, even committing genocide upon one another, will each contribute to the fighting against the U.S. and Europe because they see themselves as extensions. Hear me. They all see themselves as extensions of the Esau and Ishmael tribes. And therefore, their family, their kin. Okay. This is the mentality we deal with throughout the Bible. Esau is a bad boy. Ishmael is not the chosen one. But they are still, in the larger tribal sense, distant kinsmen, distant family of Israel. You kind of get that picture? But looking even closer, we find a rather ironic situation develop. All of Esau's sons were born inside the promised land, while Jacob's sons were all born outside the promised land. Esau's sons were born in Canaan. Jacob's sons were born in Mesopotamia. Yet in revealing his full character, Esau took his family and removed them from the blessing of the promised land, while Jacob took his family and brought them into the blessing of the promised land. Wow. I mean, what incredible symbolism we have here. What a terrible fate awaits those whose family knows God, but the leader does everything he can to remove them. And what an equally wonderful blessing to the family leader who takes his family that has existed outside of God's blessing, but he leads them into God's blessing. To add to this irony, isn't it amazing that in God's great plan, the people of Israel, of Jacob, were born into God's promises and were to be inheritors 
of all of God's promises, yet they rejected it in general and moved away from it for a time, so to speak. At the same time, Gentiles who were born outside the promises and born as non-inheritors were, through Yeshua, given the opportunity to move into the promised land and become co-inheritors with Israel. It's Esau and Jacob all over again. And as I've taught you since Genesis 1, this is just a God pattern. That's the answer as to why. It's a God pattern. And when God establishes a pattern, he sticks with it. Well, let's move on. We see many sons, grandsons, great-grandsons of Esau documented here in Genesis 36. And of course, these are mentioned because they would each have created their own named tribe. Now, some of these names that we see in this long listing, we're going to see later in the Old Testament, particularly during and after the exodus from Egypt. But notice something in verses 38 and 39. There is this fellow, a descendant of Esau, named Baal Hanan. This is just further concrete evidence of the rebellion and idolatry practiced by Esau and his descendants. Because since time immemorial, it has been the practice of the tribes of the Middle East to adopt the name of the chief god that they worshipped as part of their family name. Here we see the familiar name Baal, a Canaanite word for the now deified Nimrod. All right, attached to one of Esau's progeny. This son, and I'm sure several others, were Baal worshippers and proud of it. But we learn some other things when we dissect this genealogy chart a little bit. That things that are useful. First, though, let me address something that a sharp student of the Bible text will catch. Okay. The descendants and wives of Esau, as listed in Genesis 26 do not precisely match with those given us here in Genesis 36. And scholars have struggled with this and come to various conclusions. For instance, the three wives listed for Esau in Genesis 26 are Judith, Basimat, and Mahalat. All right. Here in Genesis 36, the wives are Adah, Basimat, and Oholibamah. That name that is just difficult for me. I don't know too many O's. And um, the only agreement between the two chapters, when you look at the name of the wives, is Besamath. Right? But even then, she's assigned a different father. Okay? She's the daughter of Elon the Hittite in Genesis 26, but she's the daughter of Ishmael in Genesis 36. Now, obviously, we have renderings of family lines from two different viewpoints. Okay. More and more, as scholars begin to unravel um, the mysteries of the Bible and stop trying to view the Bible from the European Western mindset and start viewing it for what it is, a Middle Eastern 
tribal Semitic Hebrew document, some of these issues start to clear themselves up. For example, when we look at the genealogy, the New Testament genealogy of our Savior in different Gospels, we're going to get slightly different family tree listings. But as it is now known and understood, that is because it was the Middle Eastern and Hebrew way to lay out a family tree based on pure genealogy and firstborns when bloodlines is what mattered. And a slightly different family tree listing emphasizing leaders and kings of the tribe when what matters is rulership and tribal authority. These are not in conflict with one another. It's really just a matter of the purpose of the family tree listing as to decide who's listed as from among the family, who's pertinent. Okay. Very likely, one of two things is happening with these two different lists of wives of Esau. Either some of the wives went by two different names depending on where they were living at the time, that was a very common thing in that era, or they were all wives of Esau. It's just that the first list was for one purpose and the second list for, was for another purpose. Another influence that often causes a divergence in geneal genealogical listings of the Middle East and, and of the Bible is when two prominent family groups begin to intermarry. Okay? And so over time, the lines start to blur. Okay? In our age, where divorce is more common than not, okay, it is usual that brothers and sisters living together will sometimes have different last names. All right? And that's because in our society, a woman typically changes her last name to match that of her current husband. All right? The mother's last name then will be different often than her own children. But when the mother's last name matches that of her child, or rather whether it does, is based on when that mom's name was written down and for what purpose. If she was still married to the father of her children when her name was written down, then hers and her children's last names will match. A little later, if that woman divorces and remarries, then her name could be written down again, but her last name will appear different. And it will be different than her children's last names. And of course, there's the case where a biological father will consent to allowing the new stepfather to even adopt, so that then the children's last names get changed and so on. I mean, there's just an infinite variety of possibilities. So while we all kind of understand that, because it's part of our society, and so we don't think about the way the same person's name might appear on different, different documents and call it error or conflict. In the Bible, uh, Bible era, societies did very similar things regarding name changes, but they did it for different reasons. Okay? So in the Bible, we'll often get this jumble of overlapping names and 
name changes due to births and deaths and a widow marrying a husband of a different nationality, the family relocating to another nation and adopting the local customs for naming people, the family dropping allegiance to one God and beginning allegiance to a new God, on and on and on. There was an enormous sea change in names when Judah went to Babylon and then returned. My goodness, even the months of the calendar changed, the names of the months. What we need to notice from all this is that there was much intermingling by means of marriage going on between the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and Esau, Jacob's twin brother, Isaac's son. And it began very early on. Right? And it accelerated rapidly. And it happened more so with some of the clans of each tribe and less so with others. And the result is that by the time we reach New Testament times, the intermingling is so great that it's hard to draw a distinction between a person who would call Esau his ancestor and one who would call Ishmael his ancestor. In Jesus' day, as it is now, a true Arab, that is an Arabian, not just a, a person that's called an Arab because he happens to speak one of many Arab dialects, is generally a descendant of Ishmael. And most of the other Middle Eastern tribes are a mixture of Esau and Ishmael. The main exception being those of the northern Middle Eastern areas which have more Persian blood in them. Well, the final thing we need to note before we move on is that we see the name of Amalek up here. Now, Amalek appears in the Bible as a very early enemy of Israel. And in fact, much is said in Exodus about the tribe of Amalek attacking Israel on their journey through the wilderness after leaving Egypt. Now, Amalek was a product of Timnah, his mother, who was a Horite, one of the Canaanite tribes. And in fact, Timnah was not a legal wife. She was a concubine. Okay? So she had, Timnah, had an inferior status, which in turn gave Amalek an inferior status in the tribal way of thinking. Okay. That Timnah was a Horite, again a Canaanite tribe, and was joined to the Edomite tribe, the descendants of Esau, by means of marriage to Eliphaz, an Edomite, made Amalek, therefore, one of the Edomite tribes, but an inferior family to some of the other descendants who married more closely within the family. Therefore, Amalek, though technically descendants of Esau, is really treated somewhat separately by the Holy Scriptures. Amalek is not considered kinsmen of Israel, while other descendants of Esau are considered kinsmen of Israel. And, And this whole thing reflects far more politics and traditions than it does actual genealogy. And we're going to find an awful lot of that sort of thing 
uh, throughout Old Testament and New Testament scripture. And it's up to us to discover and understand all this. Because the Hebrew writers and the early readers of the Torah and the Hebrew Bible well understood these nuances that have been almost lost to us. So please, don't close your mind off and take a little snooze when we discuss these historical, sociological, genealogical matters because next only to the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, these are the keys to actually grasping what the writings of the Bible mean and how they're applied to your life. Let's move on to Genesis chapter 37. Now before we read it, I'm going to talk about a couple things for a minute. At this point in Torah, all the remaining chapters of Genesis are going to revolve around Joseph. Okay? The era of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are coming to a rapid close. Okay? But more will be said about J Joseph and acts that focus on his life than any of the other than any of the patriarchs. Now one could also say that at this point in the Torah that Israel becomes the center point for the first time. Israel is now painted from this point forward as a separate people. They're a people now. Okay? But as of chapter 37, they certainly have not yet attained nation status. They're just not big enough to be called a nation yet. So as much as Joseph is front and center in the 13 remaining chapters of Genesis, why isn't Joseph considered a patriarch, as was his father? Now, I can't really say for sure why that status ends with Jacob and not Joseph. But I can point to one outstanding fact that certainly is a marked change in the way that Jehovah operates with the leader of the Hebrews. God had direct and two-way communication with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He delivered his instructions to the patriarchs by means of, of direct divine oracle. He did not do this with Joseph. Direct two-way communication was reserved for very special cases and apparently Joseph wasn't one of them. Now over the next several chapters woven into all this narrative we're gonna get a look at another of God's governing dynamics. Now the first governing dynamic we recognized was that of division, separation, and election. Okay? And, and this would be God's device to achieve his goal of perfecting humanity and bringing mankind into unity with himself. A word that we often hear in the church for this is sanctification. Sanctification is the act 
of God dividing, electing, separating his people apart for his purposes. Sanctification is the setting apart of humans for himself. A set-apart for God person has been granted a holy status. A status that is above the common. Common is the status of the world. Holy is the status of those set apart for God. Israel was set apart for God, so they were called holy. As a believer, you are sanctified. You have been divided, elected, and separated to become God's own children, to conform to his will, to serve him. You have been declared holy. But in reality, believers are really more like the set-apart tribe of the set-apart nation of Israel. That is, that set-apart tribe of Levi. Because we're told in the New Testament that believers of Yeshua are his priesthood. This is another governing dynamic of God, or rather this other governing dynamic of God that I'm going to talk to you about is the one that we see the Lord employ when he deals with Joseph. And that second governing dynamic I'd like to teach you about is divine providence. That is, God works his will largely unseen and unknown to us. Yet, in our ignorance, we're actually a party to it all. Somehow, in the free exercise of our wills, God guides mankind to the end he's decided in eternity past. Yet often it seems as though he isn't guiding at all. It even seems at times that he's created his creation and left us on our own, allowing his creation to take whatever route destiny has for it. Further, many times it feels that God couldn't possibly achieve his goals using the present circumstances, yet without knowing it, divine providence is at work, moving towards this inevitable, unchangeable, God-ordained conclusion. And while we can see this in action within the lives of the patriarchs, albeit pretty dimly at times, the story of Joseph is positively ablaze with observable divine providence. Of course, for us, it's observable because we have something that Joseph and all the other characters associated with this amazing journey that is Joseph's life didn't have. We have the benefit of hindsight. Because while they were in the midst of it all, they couldn't see it, divine providence. And and that's because one of the prime characteristics of divine providence is that it is rarely observable by humans as it's unfolding. So now we've been introduced to two of God's governing dynamics. Sanctification, the process of dividing, electing, and separating, and divine 
providence, the unseen working out of God's will in all humanity. With sanctification and divine providence in mind, let's now look at the life of Joseph. Let's spend about five minutes with this. We'll go, go a little distance in the 37. Genesis chapter 37. Just go a few verses. Yaakov continued living in the land where his father had lived as a foreigner, the land of Canaan. Here is the history of Yaakov. When Yosef, Joseph, was 17 years old, he used to pasture the flock with his brothers, even though he was still a boy. Once when he was with the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph the most of all his children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a long sleeve robe. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they began to hate him and reached the point where they couldn't even talk with him in a civil manner. That's where all we're going to go for the moment. With the outset of chapter 37, Joseph, who is second to the last of Jacob's sons, says he's 17 years old. Pretty good pointing of time in reference here. And he's living in Canaan, along with the rest of his brothers and his family. But pretty soon, he's going to wind up in Egypt. Okay. Now... Here might be a good time to mention something that a good calculator and a little research brings to light. A little homework for you. Recall that at the end of chapter 35, two chapters ago, is the record of the death of Jacob's father, Isaac. And I told you then that Isaac had actually lived long enough to meet all of his grandchildren. He met the leaders, the founders of all 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Isaac also remained alive long enough to know of Joseph's disappearance. Okay, But he didn't live long enough to learn the outcome. Now, as is not unusual in scriptures, which are not, by the way, designed to be a novel, right? Sometimes a statement will just kind of be laid out there and we'll assume that that statement necessarily is attached to the verse just before it or just after it. In fact, that's often not the case in Scripture. Now, in Genesis 25, 35, rather 27, Genesis 35, 27, we read of Jacob returning to Hebron and greeting Isaac. And in the next verse, very next verse, Verse 28, we read that Isaac dies at the grand old age of 180 and that his sons Esau and Jacob attended to his funeral. Well, as it turns out, verses 27 and 28 are not connected. Okay? They are simply two different statements of fact, one following the other, that Jacob came home and sometime later Isaac died. Now, with a little basic math, we find out 
that Isaac died after Joseph had gone missing for 12 years. Now, I'm not going to go through all the calculations, but if you're interested, here are two of the key ingredients. Jacob was 60 years younger than his father Isaac. So when Isaac died at 180, Jacob had to be 120. Not so tough. The second thing to know is that Jacob died at 147 years old. So he lived for 27 more years after his father died. I'll let you figure out how to arrive now at the proper timeline because all the necessary info is in the, in the next several pages. Well, the first verse of chapter 37 tells us something important. The destiny that Isaac had given to his twin sons in that blessing was unfolding. Jacob now lived in the promised land and Esau has left it living away from the fertile ground and away from the regular rainfall. But another part of a prophetic blessing from a time earlier than Jacob, even earlier than his father Isaac, is near to coming to pass. The Abrahamic blessing that for a time the Hebrews would live as strangers in a foreign land and that they would be oppressed. Back in Genesis 15, 13. It says this. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they'll serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Soon we're going to find out that the land that is not theirs, the place that they're going to go to live, is Egypt. And in chapter 37, we're just but a few years, just a handful of years, until that event becomes a very bitter reality. And next week, we'll get into that.